Well, you can see the theme on your screen. We're looking at some time passages in the history of the church, and there's a lot of different characters, uh, as well as controversies and different uh, elements of conflict in the history of the church. You might be familiar with some of them. You might not be familiar with most of them. Uh, when I uh, bit off this uh, subject, I knew it would be challenging, but as I put the material together, I find it especially challenging uh, to choose the different characters and controversies and issues uh, that church uh, has faced over the centuries, simply because there are so many of them. But I'm trying to give you at least a, a general understanding of things uh, in terms of why the church today looks the way it looks, uh, why there are even to this day different controversies over certain things, certain doctrines or decisions and so forth. So last week we took a look at um, the first era that um, was the age of Jesus and the apostles from 6 BC to 70 AD. And tonight what I wanna do is take a look at 70 to 312 AD. And this is uh, the age of Catholic Christianity. But before you get ahead of yourself on that, uh, not Catholic in the sense of the Roman Catholic Church, that will be next week when we see where a lot of that starts. By Catholic, we need to define the idea behind Catholic Christianity. And it's uh, this idea that the, um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So I, I said that there's a picture that I'm going to show you each week that kind of summarizes the era that we're looking at. And last week was the Last Supper, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, portrait of the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples, which is the beginning of the establishment of the church that Jesus promised he would build in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, last week, there's some key turning points. Keep this in the back of your mind. It's not on the handout that I sent you, but um, just kind of keep this in the back of your mind because we'll build on that tonight. Christianity began as a sect of Judaism, uh, a, a daughter of Judaism, and Jesus comes into the world, begins his earthly ministry, and begins to uh, reform and reinterpret certain elements of Judaism. Uh, the teachings of Jesus, um, as we think about how the church continues, were kind of replaced with teachings about Jesus. And you're going to see tonight that uh, teachings about Jesus brought up a lot of different doctrinal uh, viewpoints, and some of the early church struggled with some of those things. The teachings about Jesus was advanced through the conversion and missionary activity of the Apostle Paul. So tonight, as we're looking at this age of Catholic Christianity, the picture I want to show you is that of people that paid the price uh, for some of the early years. Uh, we called them martyrs. These are individuals that suffer persecution because they chose to follow Jesus. So kind of keep that in uh, the back of your mind as we move ahead to tonight. So when Christianity began to spread throughout the Roman Empire, 
this expanding movement kind of began in fits and starts. And what I mean by that is sometimes when we think about the beginning of the church, we often associate it with the day of Pentecost. And the book of Acts tells us that there were 3,000 people added on the day of Pentecost to the church. And we might think that that created such a momentum uh, that it was unstoppable. That's probably the wrong idea to have in mind. Uh, it had its challenges. Uh, it made progress, and then it had setbacks in various places geographically. Uh, some of these places were areas where persecution and especially ridicule began to take place against Christians, and some of that was uh, politically motivated. Some of it was uh, economically motivated, as I'll mention in a few moments. During this era, uh, especially after uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, there is the development of leadership within the church. Uh, you'll find in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, you'll find the mention of uh, offices like deacon, like elder, like bishop. Uh, those type of things are uh, necessary in the early stages of the church. They needed the leadership uh, that these uh, men and women provided. I mentioned a moment ago that the age of Catholic Christianity has more to do with the idea of a universal movement than the idea of a specific denomination. So when we recite the Apostles' Creed, um, one line in it is, I believe, in the uh, Holy Catholic Church. And if you notice, the spelling of Catholic in the Apostles' Creed is lowercase. It's not capital. And the reason for that is it's the idea of a movement that includes not just Jewish people, but Gentiles as well. And it's a massive movement that begins to make its way uh, across Asia Minor and so forth. And all of this kind of comes on the tail of some very familiar passages of Scripture. I think we're all familiar with Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1 where we find the Great Commission, where Jesus tells his disciples to go into all the world and be his witnesses. Now, this begins primarily within Jewish circles. Remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8 reminds us that be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, which is all in the, in, in the same small geographical area, and then out to the rest of the earth. And it would take a while for that to happen. Uh, remember that the death of Jesus either occurred in 30 AD or 33 AD, depending upon when we think his ministry began. And most of the movement that we find in the book of Acts, especially in the life of the apostle Paul, uh, gives to us a span of time that begins really not within a few years of the death of, and resurrection of Jesus. It would take a while for this to, to catch hold and uh, Paul to come to faith in Acts chapter 9 and then begin these missionary journeys. So again, the day of Pentecost is this unique uh, 
moment in history where uh, the Holy Spirit is given and there are people that come to faith. And from there, it begins in small circles of people who begin to share their faith within their life uh, uh, circles and that type of thing. And what we'll find is really it's not until the Apostle Paul, as he heads out from a church north of Jerusalem in Antioch, that he'll take the good news of the gospel through Asia Minor three different times. And then uh, ultimately he will get to Rome where he is arrested and he is put in prison. But you'll notice that the book of Acts really only tells us the story in the early chapters of Peter and then in the later chapters of Paul. Well, what about the rest of the apostles? Well, we have to kind of go on tradition in terms of what directions they headed and uh, how they established the church uh, through their own efforts. So with that in mind, uh, this is the idea of Catholic uh, universality, Jews and Gentiles. It's interesting that the word Catholic is not found in the New Testament. Um, this idea of Catholic really arose from a guy by the name of Ignatius. Ignatius uh, was the bishop of the church up in Antioch in the second century. Uh, this is the church that was the sending church for the Apostle Paul uh, he is the one, first one to really use the idea of Catholic uh, within uh, different uh, letters and, um, and sermons and that type of thing. He is an individual that gives up his life in martyrdom in uh, Rome. And you can see here on the screen a picture that depicts him being martyred as he's thrown to wild animals in 108 A.D., and it's believed his relics uh, are still there in St. Peter's Basilica. Um, and uh, there is a shrine there uh, at, at the Basilica of San Clemente in Rome. He's an individual that is important because it is in his writings that we begin to see um, terms that are often used in church terms like ecclesiology, which is the idea of how the church is organized and how it is to be administered. Um, he begins to talk in terms of baptism and the Lord's table uh, using the term of sacrament. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, there are seven sacraments, uh, but here we find uh, a couple of things starting to make its way into uh, the uh, verbiage of the life of the church. He's one that kind of helps define the role of bishops overseeing some of the churches uh, throughout the area. And uh, by the second uh, end of the second century, um, we find this term Catholic has become so popular that it is included in the Apostles' Creed, as I mentioned before. So the idea of Catholic is the idea of universality, uh, between G uh, Jew and Gentile. Now, that was uh, there even from the time of Paul. I want to read for you a selection out of Ephesians chapter 3. Now, the book of Ephesians is a prison epistle 
of the Apostle Paul. And so he has always already made his way to Rome uh, as he writes this letter. But I want you to know the notice the concentration that he has here in chapter 3, verse 1, it says here, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've, I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Okay, what mystery is that? He's mentioned it a couple times. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So this is that idea of universality, Jews and Gentiles being brought together. But it's not an easy task. Verse 7, he goes on and says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past has, was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So this is the idea. Two groups of people, very diverse and different, are brought together in Christ. And this is the mystery that God had in mind all along that's revealed through Christ and his apostles. All right. Does that make sense? Do you have any questions or comments? Okay, so I showed you this last week. We won't harp on this, uh, but you'll notice right here, uh, you'll find up uh, there is the church in Antioch. So you see down here is um, the area of Judea and Jerusalem and uh, to the north, so approximately 100 miles or so from Jerusalem, you have Antioch and Syria. This is the missionary a church that sends out the Apostle Paul three times, and you can see the spaghetti movement of Paul in the lines of different places that he stopped, and he um, he often began a trade work there and began to establish contacts whereby a, a church would be developed. Eventually, at the end of the book of Acts, we find that he makes his way all the way across the Mediterranean Sea where he makes it finally to Rome, and it's there that he's uh, under house arrest for two years. Um, and so the spread of the faith is that of um, commissioned by Christ, carried out by all the apostles, but 
the one that we're told most about in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Uh, his story is front and center in the book of Acts, and um, it, it, it comes up in his letters as well. Uh, I think we're all familiar with Romans 1.17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God uh, given both for Jew, first to the Jews and then to the uh, G uh, Greeks or Gentiles. So um, this here um, is important to keep in mind. When Paul makes his way through Asia Minor, those areas north and west of Jerusalem, it's not just Gentiles. There are also Jews and synagogues that are in this territory as well. Um, it seems as though there were many different Jews that had settled in all different parts of the Roman Empire. Um, they had the distinction of carrying their Judaism uh, into these areas. And even before the arrival of the Apostle Paul, you find some Gentiles have already come to faith in Jesus, um, or I let me dub, uh, back up on that. Before they come to faith in Jesus, is what I meant to say, they already had come to belief in the God of Israel. And there's a term you can see here that there were Gentiles that converted to Judaism, and they were known as God-fearers. These are individuals that were at first caught up in uh, pagan religion, and um, this religion is such that um, they believed in many gods, but uh, through the witness of Jews that were spread throughout the Roman Empire, you have uh, people that come to faith in the Jewish God. And so uh, Paul will build upon that, and uh, that will be part of his contact points in the places that he stops. I mentioned a moment ago that usually what Paul did when he stopped in these places, although we're only given a little bit of a, a hint at it in the book of Acts, um, it he was an individual that was a tradesman as well, which is interesting because he's an individual that was a Pharisee. He had a very, uh, very good education uh, in, uh, uh, in his own hometown, uh, Tarsus, and he was an individual that yet, we're told in the book of Acts, he was a tent maker, but he probably did more than that. The word that is used there for being a tent maker means a leather worker, really. So he might have uh, made shoes, he might have made other things as well. And uh, as he was able to establish himself in the community, uh, he then made contacts, built bridges of trust, and shared the good news about Christ with Jews and Gentiles. Many times he would be invited into the synagogue as a Jew, and he uh, would open up a conversation, usually reading some part of the Old Testament, and then proceeding to show how that pointed toward Christ. So these are some of the foundational elements that we find um, and it's interesting that, at least in the early church, um, we find that uh, the Jews that came to faith uh, uh, in Jesus kind of saw themselves as a remnant, kind of a new and faithful Israel 
in contrast to uh, those who had been stuck within the formality of their Judaism, but were not open to um, uh, to following Christ or at least uh, trusting Christ as Messiah. Some thoughts, any comments, questions? Okay, so now these movements, uh, I've only included really one story, but each of the apostles kind of have their own story and in terms of where they went and uh, what effect they had. So after the fall in Ju of Jerusalem in 70 AD, where the Romans basically wipe out the city and, and destroy the temple, Christians begin to move into other areas. The primary movement is to the north and to the west, uh, and that's where Paul traveled. But what we're also told is that um, there were others like Thomas, and I'm going to tell you his story here in a moment, that will go in other directions beyond north and west and over toward Europe. Before I get there, though, it's interesting that that church in Antioch in Syria to the north. Um, I showed you the map here. It's up to the north of Jerusalem. That church, it is believed, was started by an individual by the name of Adai. And tradition says that he is one of the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out. So if you were to look in Luke chapter 10, you'll find that um, there was an occasion where Jesus commissioned a group of his followers to go out into different territories and to proclaim the good news. Uh, we are given kind of a, a peephole into terms of uh, how the gospel spread. It's only when you look outside the scriptures that you get stories like this one here about uh, the Apostle Thomas. Now, does anybody remember what nickname um, Thomas had? Not, not that he was doubting Thomas, but do you remember an alternate name for Thomas? Anybody remember that? Didymus? Yeah, right. That's right. Didymus. Okay. Um, Didymus is a word that means twin. And what's fascinating here is early church history, uh, some, some uh, teachers believe that Thomas was Jesus' twin brother, okay? Um, the, yeah, yeah. So it, fascinating, uh, a fascinating tradition that developed. Um his middle name uh, was Judas, um, and there's a little epistle at the end of the uh, New Testament called Jude. There's some, some contemplation as if that might be um, the name that applies to Thomas and as the brother of Jesus. Uh, so there's all kinds of traditions that we are often unfamiliar with that circulated in the early church. But here's one that's interesting to me. It's um, the apostle Thomas is believed to have gone to India. 
Uh, I don't know if anybody has been to India, but there is a group of Christians in India that are called Thomas Christians. And it is believed uh, that he is an individual that not only traveled there and carried the good news, but he wrote his own um, a book of uh, uh, that did not make it into the canon of the New Testament. It's called The Acts of Thomas. And it's an uh, a early literary account of um, the martyrdom of Thomas in India. And it's believed that he had landed in India in 52 AD and was martyred in 72 AD. So it's still fairly early. And here you'll see a picture that is one of the things that uh, has been done uh, that's built on the tradition that he was killed with a spear. And it was believed that the Hindu priests uh, were jealous of him and his success. And uh, so they killed him at a place called Big Hill. And this that's what this particular uh, picture is representing is his own martyrdom. There's another fascinating element to uh, Thomas's life. Um, it is also believed that the uh, Gospel of Thomas, another writing, has an additional 114 different sayings of Jesus. Okay, so different teachings and elements of Jesus that are not found in our collection of Gospels in the New Testament. So I, I just find some of these things really fascinating uh, that different apostles went in different directions. And it is believed that most of them suffered a martyrdom death for a variety of different reasons. Uh, it's believed really only John is the one that died a natural death, that the rest, including Peter, was uh, uh, martyred. Uh, it's believed by tradition that Peter was crucified upside down because he was, he did not feel himself worthy to be crucified as Jesus. So he was crucified upside down. Uh, some of the others, um, as I already showed you, uh, some were killed by uh, wild animals. Um, some of the second and third generation Christians that were killed, some of them very, uh, very famous, a guy by the name of Polycarp, was burned at the stake. He has a famous saying uh, that uh, Christ has not denied me for 80 some odd years and I will not deny him. And he says, here, give me the torch. And he lit himself on fire as he was at the stake there, considering himself uh, privileged to give his life to Christ in martyrdom. Some thoughts, any, any comments on that? So what we're seeing is we're seeing some, some persecution pop up. We see some of that in the book of Acts. It seems as though, have you ever noticed uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts stays lengthy periods of time in places like Ephesus and Corinth and stuff? It kind of goes back again to him being a tradesman and taking time to establish 
uh, a bridge building relationship with people that are there. But once he begins to preach the good news of Christ, once he begins to talk in these terms, he's often pushed out of town. And in the book of Acts, uh, you'll find there's a riot that develops in Ephesus where he barely escapes uh, with his life. Now, there has been some persecution prior to his movements. Remember, the apostle Peter was cast into prison, and an angel comes and delivers him in the early part of Acts. But really, the apostle Paul is kind of the forerunner of what's going to happen to the church. But again, it is not really everywhere. It's in various places, usually urban centers, cities, where there are other temples and uh, other religious factors that are going on. Uh, sometimes in urban areas, uh, there is such a conglomeration of different types of people that there is this conflict that develops. In rural areas, though, um, in general, they probably just didn't care one way or the other. Um, there's probably not as much political and economic ties in these rural areas as there is in urban areas. Okay, any thoughts? Uh, Larry, when, yeah. we, when we were in... Um... The Holy Land this year. Mm -hmm. We went to we went to Ephesus again, uh -huh. and one of the traditions that they really hold by is that Mary John brought Mary to Ephesus to live, mm. and you know they give you a tour of where mm -hmm. her house was and mm -hmm. that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Is there anything? that would substantiate that? Have you run across anything like that? Yeah. Do you remember in uh, John chapter 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Right, right. And he says, a woman, behold your son. And then he looks to, we presume, remember John is never named in his gospel. Right. Okay. Right. Um that he looks to John and he says, behold your mother. And Correct. I think a lot of that tradition kind of stems from Jesus saying, you take care of my mother, uh, John. And of course, John, uh, of course, there's some debate that's going on. Is this John uh, that is the apostle of Jesus or uh, later in the book of Revelation, John the Revelator, is that another individual called John the Elder? So there's some conflicting traditions going on there. But if it is John the Apostle, and he is the one that um, is communicating to the seven churches in Revelation, then it could be very likely that uh, he did take maybe Mary with him, uh, to that area, and maybe that becomes uh, okay. his uh, his um, home base, if you will, uh, for ministering to those seven churches in the area. So, but there's no <clears throat> trackings of John anywhere. Only by traditions. Uh, okay. So you know these different traditions develop, and you you say, is there is that the full truth, part truth, or no truth? in some of those. 
And that's hard to say. And that's what scholars often debate uh, about, you know, which John is it? John the Apostle or John the Elder? You know, all these debates go on because there are a lot of, there are a lot of holes, I guess, that we can't fill. Oh, yeah. You know, so anyways, but that's a great point that you're bringing up. It's very good. Others? Okay. So one other movement that is pretty substantial is um, movement down into Africa. So what we find here, here's Jerusalem. As you move through Egypt here, you're going to come to a city called Alexandria. This is a very important city. Uh, some of the best libraries in the world at that time were found in Alexandria. But if you move further west, you're going to see a little city here called Cyrene. Now, this is fascinating because we're told a little bit about this city even before Jesus commissions the disciples with the Great Commission. Remember in the book of Acts, um, uh, let me back up. Remember in the book of Mark, the individual that is chosen when uh, Jesus is walking the Via Della Rosa to the cross, uh, he can't carry it anymore. And we're told in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, there's a guy that's uh, by the name of Simon of what? Cyrene, that carries the cross for him. That is from this area here, you uh, uh, down along the north coast of Africa. Here's another thing that's interesting. Um, it's very probable that uh, Simon of Cyrene uh, became a believer uh, in Jesus and that his son, if you look at that epilogue in the book of Romans where Paul is saying, say hi to so-and-so, you know, give greetings to this person and that person. There's a guy by the name of Rufus that's mentioned there that's associated with Simon. Uh, could be the son of Simon. Uh, Cyrene also was mentioned on the day of Pentecost, that there were some people from Cyrene that had come to Jerusalem for the uh, Feast of Pentecost. There are some, though, that were resistant. Uh, there's a mention in Acts 6-9 that there was uh, a Cyrene individual that disputed with Stephen before he was martyred. And then the last mention is in Acts 11-20 where uh, there are some Cyrenians that make a decisive step to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. So uh, that area is is found several times in the New Testament. Alexandria, though, is more important historically. Um, it is the center of Greek philosophy. Uh, it was founded by Alexander the Great in 332 BCE, and it was a center place for uh, trade and philosophy and uh, there's a well-known philosopher by the name of Philo, who is a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, actually, um, that uh, is centered in Alexandria. And one of the things that happens down here, which is interesting, 
is a group of Jewish people that are trying to harmonize uh, their Judaism uh, with Greek philosophy, which is, you know, Greek philosophy was a, a powerful movement. It's part of the Hellenization that was one of the goals of Alexander the Great. And they wrestled with how does Judaism, uh, how does it intersect? Where are the common ground uh, between Greek philosophy and Judaism and stuff? Here's another tradition. Um, there, uh, Christians say that John Mark uh, made his way uh, to this area and uh, Al in Alexandria and was the founder of the church. Again, we're only going on traditions here. Um, it's hard to really know uh, what is what is actual, what is fact. Um, that's why archaeology, biblical archaeology, plays an important role in, in doing some of the footwork for some of these early church traditions. They're able sometimes to substantiate it, and sometimes they're, um, they correct some of the, um, the things that have been told, sometimes for a number of years. So anyways, so India, North Africa, Asia Minor, moving into Europe, all of these are areas that happen um, really in that end of the first century that we find and again, our best record of that is really through the writings of the Apostle Paul, where we piece together where he traveled and the book of Acts. Any thoughts? So this is interesting. Um, this idea of universality between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles did have a social impact. And... The majority of converts initially uh, often came through humble people, slaves, women, traders, and soldiers. However, when you have different areas established like Alexandria in Egypt, the movement begins to rise among intellectuals as well. And these intellectuals uh, are the ones that will become what we call apologists for the early faith. They are the ones that are going to defend. And you'll see a lot of iconography in pictures like this that represent some of these early apologists. We have no idea if, if any of these have likeness to the actual looks of some of these individuals, but that's the way that they are often portrayed and uh, what we find here is that um, they will they will uh, divide themselves up in some ways to um, to defend Christianity uh, in different ways, whether it's a defense uh, to the public or against paganism, or uh, it has a wide variety of different uh, approaches. So. Maybe the best way to think about uh, the apologists um, are individuals in the second and third century. So, okay, this is at the end, uh, as, you, as you end the first century, getting into the second century and third century. So we're talking about the 100s and the 200s AD. 
these intellectuals begin writing a lot, different treatises that uh, defend Christianity. Their objective is to gain a fair hearing and uh, to dispel some of the slander that was being brought against Christians. Um, they had to meet up with how to answer pagan philosophy um, and even some Jewish objectors as well. And they, too, would have their own share of martyrs. Um, but I think what's important to keep in mind here is that these individuals are kind of the initial individuals uh, that are beginning to formulate more formal expressions of doctrine. And as they begin to... Uh, to defend certain elements of the faith, they begin to try to not only categorize them, but uh, logically th think through that. Not all of them will have the same opinion of, of how to look at different portions of scripture, but they are thinking much more theologically than anybody else up to this point. So you see a picture here representing a guy by the name of Justin Martyr. Uh, he is one of the more important apologists because of um, the proficiency of his writing. Uh, he wrote a lot, and um, he is an individual that, uh, in his writings, seeks to reconcile not just faith, but reason as well. And that's kind of the movement of the church, is there is a movement of intellectualism, how does uh, philosophy interact with, with faith? He too will be met with opposition. He too will suffer a martyr's death. Here's another guy by the name of Irenaeus. Uh, Irenaeus lived between 130 and 202. Uh, by now, you see how far the gospel has gone. He is a bishop at the church in Lyon in France. And he wrote a substantial amount of uh, text trying to uh, defeat a, and I'll, I'll talk about what this is in a moment, um, a, a, an arising of teaching called Gnosticism. I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, he's an individual that uh, is trying to refute some of the heretical teachings that are beginning to rise up at uh, in the second and third century. Another guy uh, that is notable here is Tertullian, 155 to 220. Now we see the influence of Latin starting to come into the church. And so in the next era that we'll look at next week, we're going to see that in the next era, Latin will become the language of the mass, the different masses that are done by the priests and so forth. Um, he wrote about how absurd it is uh, for persecution to be directed toward Christians. And uh, he was a very, um, he was an aesthetic uh, type of person. He he withdrew uh, and joined a group called the Montanists. Um, and uh, these individuals were, as I put here, 
uh, ethically very rigorous, had a lot of rules. And the reason so is because they had a viewpoint, much like the Apostle Paul, believing that the end of the world was near. So when you think about the Apostle Paul, his earliest writing, his earliest letter is 1 Thessalonians. And um, that letter talks a lot about kind of end time thought uh, and the return of Jesus. Tertullian attacked a guy by the name of Marcion. And that's an important name to keep in mind. The Marcionites were people that believe that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. Why? Well, the reason is the God of the Old Testament looks very different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is very violent. The God of the Old Testament um, is driven by rage and anger and judgment. And that's not the type of God that Jesus talks about. Uh, so the Marcionites uh, began to give an alternative teaching in the early church. And that is, there are two different gods that are represented in the Bible. Uh, the first one being this vicious God of the Old Testament, and the other is the God of love represented in Jesus. That is deemed to be heretical by the early church fathers. Uh, but uh, Marcion, iron ironically enough, developed his own canon of scripture. And uh, he was an individual that rejected the whole Old Testament and rejected all the writings of the New Testament except the Gospel of Luke and seven letters of Paul. That's it. That's, it. That's his scripture. So um, one of the things to just kind of keep in mind, persecution is starting to, to develop. And as a result, apologists, that's kind of the technical term, we might call them, are trying to defend the faith. Well, the persecution of the early Christians began not too long after the resurrection of Jesus. So in the years that followed the crucifixion and resurrection, what we find is that Christians were in a quandary. And the quandary was now that uh, Christ is deemed as Messiah and Lord, we cannot give an oath of loyalty to Caesar. It's interesting that Jesus said on an occasion, give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give to God the things that belong to God. Well, because uh, they would not give an oath of loyalty to Caesar, many of the authorities in the Roman Empire began to mistrust them. Can they be trusted to be good citizens? Are they going to be individuals that are going to upset the uh, peace of Rome? And so these authorities, um, ironically enough, were tolerant of all kinds of religions and all kinds of gods, uh, as long as you also recognized the deity that belongs to Caesar and the loyalty that belongs to Caesar. So the way it worked was pretty simple. If these national religions of all these different people that they had conquered were to give homage to the emperor, 
Rome didn't care what other gods you believed in. As long as you paid your tribute, as long as you offered incense uh, and showed your loyalty to the emperor, believe what you want. Uh, so they had some immunity from persecution, these other religions, but not the Christians. Um, the Christians that began to say, hey, we're not going to worship anyone but the one true God represented in Judaism and now through Christ, um, that began to arouse not only a lot of suspicion, but also some scorn as well. The Christians were often considered social misfits. And by that, I mean, um, they were individuals that couldn't be trusted. Um, and because they couldn't be trusted, they often found it hard to find employment and to keep employment. Because in the Roman Empire, there were a lot of trade guilds. Uh, we might call them unions today. Uh, that um, if you belong to a trade guild, whatever your trade was, uh, this guild would uh, again use the power of the common trade within um, within the empire. But they also worship different gods that represented the trade. Some of these gods, obviously, none of us would ever know because they're small gods. They're not the major gods that were worshipped. Um, uh, in the Roman Empire. However, what we do know is these deities were often honored, and sometimes Christians would refuse uh, to give honor to these deities, and as a result, uh, some of them lost their jobs, um, and sometimes Christians had to kind of withdraw from the social fabric of society, uh, and so you find them retreating and uh, sometimes even um, some of these Christians found that they could not only keep a job, but some of them had been arrested. Uh, and then as time goes along, some of them will be killed for their faith. I think what happens next and the first persecution that we find of Christians is around 64 AD uh, under Nero, uh, the emperor Nero. And the reason they are being persecuted is because he used, Nero used the Christians as a scapegoat uh, for a massive fire that took place uh, in Rome. Uh, there's all kinds of things that are connected here, power, money, uh, politics, all these type of things are working. Um, and here what we find is that Nero, uh, it is believed by some of the early historians that he was the one that actually had the fire started. Well, why would he do that? Well, he didn't like the way some of Rome was laid out. And he had his own um, plans uh, that he'd like to rebuild Rome uh, with a different footprint and a different, um, uh, a different architectural layout, that type of thing. Well, if he did start it, uh, and rumors started to circulate that Nero was the one 
that started the fire, um, he had to divert attention away from himself. And he used Christians as the scapegoats that they were the ones to be blamed for this fire. And you can see here on the screen, 70% of the buildings in Rome at that time uh, were destroyed. And that forced a lot of uh, homelessness, a lot of people into homelessness. And the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that half of the city was homeless and 70% of the buildings were destroyed. So think of, think of Gaza right now. If you want a picture of the heartache and disease and all the things that that type of thing occurs, think of Gaza right now and how it's been destroyed and its uh, infrastructure has been taken away. So um, Nero, it is believed, started this so that he could rebuild the city. Now, how many of you have ever heard that um, Nero... Uh, uh, played the fiddle while Rome burnt. Have you ever heard that phrase? That Rome was uh, was burning while Nero fiddled. Well, that's urban legend. There's no, <laughs> there's really no, um, there's no historian that says that, and probably it's wrong. Not only because we don't have the historical uh, uh, piece to it, but it is believed that he was in a villa. Uh, outside of Rome at the time Rome was building. Of course, he left the city, right? And um, a second thing that's interesting is that the fiddle hadn't even been invented yet. So uh, the idea of this instrument being played by Nero while Rome burnt is probably just a lot of uh, urban legend. But what is true is he did blame the Christians, and that began the first notable persecution against uh, the Christian movement. It's interesting that Nero, four years after this occurred, uh, was declared an enemy of the state. Interesting, this, uh, this uh, Caesar Nero is now uh, being accused of certain things. And as a result of that, he takes his own life. He cuts his own throat and commits suicide. Um, and so a lot of a lot of uh, uh, interesting angles are going on under the first persecution of the Christians. Yeah. Something that just occurred to me, I wonder if the persecution against Christian Christians was a lot more than against other religions is because Christians were talking about Christ is coming soon. Yeah. And he is setting up his kingdom. And yeah. other religions were not not that type of a threat to the the leaders or the, the government like the Christians were, because <clears throat> the Christians king is coming right now. You're spot on. You're spot on there. Because even Jesus said, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um Paul is very apocalyptic in his early uh, letters, in 1 Thessalonians especially, and um, it would be seen as a threat. The one thing to remember about pagan religion is this. Um, pagan religion was more concerned about having God on your side for what that God can do in this life, not the next life. Pagan religion really didn't 
have any concern about the life hereafter. Some of them didn't even believe in uh, uh, a life hereafter. But when Christianity became so exclusive and began to talk in political terms, when you talk about the kingdom of God, you're using a political term. And um, and I think you're right on. I You know, that was seen as a threat as well, for sure. Other thoughts? Okay, what time do we have here? You guys mind it going another 10 minutes and finishing this lesson, this era? Yeah? Yes, no, maybe? Well, I'm going to. Okay. <laughs> so these different accusations against Christianity um, also was fascinating when the Christians began to meet in secret because of persecution, there was other innuendos that began to come against Christians. Uh, they met in secret. Uh, they were a closed group. And as a result of that, when people outside the faith um, heard of things like uh, partaking of the body and blood of Christ. There was an accusation uh, uh, that they were cannibalistic. Um, uh, that And how that touches against uh, people of pagan religions is that would anger the gods. And if the gods get angered, well, we might be the target of the judgment of that gods too. So they didn't like that. Another thing that was often thrown uh, their way is that they were sexually immoral because in some of the literature, um, it talks about giving one another a holy kiss. And you know how uh, different innuendos often develop like that. So what happens here is they basically begin to hide in secret and uh, nobody knows what's going on behind closed doors, okay? Um, sort of like the Masons. What do they do in their meetings? And if you're not a Mason, you don't know because they're sworn to secrecy on some stuff. So a lot of the innuendo um, and accusations for illegal assembly were marks of treason and the whole nine yards is, is an interesting thing. So this persecution will not go away as long as they will not uh, confess that Caesar is Lord. Um, if you were to confess that Caesar's Lord, uh, again, no problem. There's one name here that's interesting, Emperor uh, Decius, uh, 249 to 51 AD, made worship compulsory uh, for all the nations that they had conquered. And so you had to kind of be certified in your loyalty. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of information around this. But for tonight, you had to offer some incense and confess that Caesar's Lord to prove your loyalty. And then you would be given a certifying document um, that you could then go ahead and worship any other god that you wanted to. You've already 
made sure that Caesar is top priority. But since Christians did not believe in that, um, they believed that was idolatry, then they uh, were not given this certifying document that sometimes played into their employment uh, as well. So what we find is that this confession of Caesar is Lord is not unusual. Anybody that is substantial in the pantheon of gods provides something for the people. In the case of Caesar, he is the one that helps carry on what is called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which is connected closely to the goddess Roma, and it was believed that the spirit of Roma is incarnated in the emperor. Now, you'll see some similarities there to uh, some teachings of Christianity. Jesus is Lord, and he gives his spirit that indwells his people. So there's some, there's some, um, there's some commonalities there. Now, that means, and this is an important word, with the persecution, with some of the heretical teachings that are starting to arise, there is also the rise of what is called orthodoxy. Now, orthodoxy is a way of thinking about a true test of faith. So orthodoxy is considered good theology, heresy, or being heretical, is bad theology. Orthodoxy is kind of considered to be the majority opinion at the time. Um, that is the bishops and pastors. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, this is what they agree on. And some elements of it make its way into the New Testament. So the Apostle Paul is already having his wheels turn a little bit on what does a true faith look like? Well, we already read out of Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to go back to that just as an illustration. Uh, we are talking about the bonding of these two groups of people. That's in Ephesians 3. Uh, but then into chapter 4, he says uh uh, this, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Okay, this idea of unity, common cause, um, and what does that look like? Verse 4, there's one body and one Spirit just as you were called into one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. There's one of the short confessions of faith. The development of the Apostles' Creed will become a large, larger statement of faith of what the early church believed was orthodox teaching. You have a couple of other um cross-references there as well. All right. So I mentioned that there are certain teachings that crept into the church. I just want to summarize them real quick. These are studies in and of themselves, if we wanted to do a deep dive on them. 
there were three of them primarily that arose. Um, one called the Ebionites. Um, they really believed um, that Judaism should stay the same. They were individuals that wanted to maintain the Jewish law and forms of worship. But here's a key here. They did not believe in the deity of Christ. They believed that Jesus was adopted by God as a gifted man. He could be a Messiah, but he was not divinity. A second uh, teaching that arose is called docetism. Docetism comes from a word doceo, which means to appear. Now, what that means is the teaching taught that Jesus was not fully human. Why? Because this world and the materiality of this world is evil. Therefore, how could, uh, how could Jesus have a body? Our bodies are evil. Uh, what, is, what is important is the spirit. So it, they taught that Jesus didn't have uh, a human body. He only appeared to have a human body. So these are the exact opposite. This denies the deity of Jesus. This one denies the humanity of Jesus. The biggest one of all, though, is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism has at its heart dealing with the problem that we all need to deal with. So look at this little picture here. You have a God represented in the Old Testament that is seems to be evil by some of the things that he commands. And you have a God in the New Testament uh, that seems to be very loving. So what you have is how is it that a good God can create an evil world? So they come up with the thought that the God of creation created Jesus as the first sub-God or called a demiurge that is the revealer of um, God's will. But after Jesus, there was a series of sub-gods that kept getting more evil and evil along the way until you got to this demiurge that is named Yahweh in the Old Testament that is so evil that he creates an evil world. The only way to get salvation is to, uh, to get the, uh, the knowledge of this, uh, of what has happened, that we are all kind of entrapped in an evil world in which we live. And the only way we can escape it is by the gnosis. And, uh, the gnosis is knowledge. And it's this idea of knowledge that we can rise up above the evil of the world and return back to uh, the oneness that God had with Jesus at the beginning of creation, which is uh, pure uh, and not evil. So again, this idea here in Gnosticism, since matter in the world is evil, Jesus can only appear to have a physical body. So a part of Gnosticism includes this idea of uh, docetism as well, okay? <laughs> Excuse me. All right, so I, I think that I think that is summary enough for us to understand when you read 
some of the New Testament letters, the later New Testament letters, uh, you will find this idea of Gnosticism already just in seed form making its way into the church. Uh, I will close with uh, this, and you can read uh, about the formation of the New Testament, but I want to read 1 John. In 1 John, um, it's important to hear how John starts this letter. That which was from the beginning. Ah, I'm going to put this so I can see it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim and concern the, concerning the word of life. It goes back to the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So this appearing of Jesus uh, is important um, when we think about uh, Jesus coming into the world and making himself known. And it says, uh, we have seen and we have heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And this fellowship is with the father and with his son. John is already talking about, we have seen him, we have heard him, uh, we have touched him. Um, you know, this Jesus was a real man. He wasn't uh, some type of, uh, I don't know what I want to call it, appearance or uh, manifestation, but he, he he begins talking in these terms, and um, he talks about it in such a way that uh, you feel that some of this teaching is already starting to make its way into the life of the church. It really does not hit its momentum, though, until the second century. Uh, but you'll, you'll see things like that in the scriptures. Why is he mentioning hearing and seeing and touching? It's because probably some of the elements of Gnosticism that are beginning to creep in. Okay, I'm going to leave that there. We have talked on and off about things like the formation of the Bible. We've talked a little bit about the Apocrypha in the past. Um, and those type of things are in the next couple of slides. I don't think I need to go through them again. I, I already mentioned about Marcion uh, developing his own canon. And uh, interestingly enough, Marcion was excommunicated from the church because it, they believed he was not orthodox. There's where that term orthodox comes back in. Uh, what was the accepted, um, uh, you know, the accepted teaching of the day. So uh, I'll come back because we're going to kind of look at the, in the next era, a little bit of the third century. So I'll start with this uh, next week because it kind of is a, it's kind of a, a crossover, if you will, into the next era a little bit. So let me let me uh, stop the share that I have and see if you have any other thoughts or questions uh, in our study tonight. Anything I can clarify before we 
close our time. If not, so just hang in there. A lot of these pieces help us to see why the history of the church unfolds the way it unfolds and why it looks the way it does even in our own day. So, all right. Well, then we will stop there and we'll wish everyone a good night and a good rest of the week. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs>